Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working in the Weeds, a podcast from the UF-IFAS Center for Aquatic Invasive Plants. My name is Jay Farrell, and with me, as always, is our co-host, Christine Krebs. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. So, Christine, tell everyone what we're talking about today. Yeah, so this episode um, is titled Common Questions, and that's kind of what we're going to be tackling today, a couple of common questions that we receive from various people that are curious about aquatic plant management, and yeah. Well, I love this topic because it seems that no matter where I am in the country, I can be at public meetings in Connecticut, Texas, Florida, or even talking with colleagues that we have in New Zealand. Every time you bring up aquatic plant management, it seems like the same questions get asked no matter where you are in the country or in the world. So we're looking forward to tackling some of these questions today and see if we can't work our way through them. So we're going to answer three common questions that we receive. Um, And here they are. (laughs) There are so many invasive plants and many have become sort of naturalized citizens of the state of Florida. Why can't we just leave them alone? Let them be. Second question. Why can't we just leave a few plants? So if we're not going to leave them alone, why can't we just leave some? And then the third question. Are they just dumping herbicides into water? What are they doing with these treatments? Yeah, these are all so great and so relevant. And like I said, we hear them all the time. So let's start at the top and let's work our way through these. So there are so many invasive plants. Why not just forget it, right? The cat is out of the bag. We're already here. I've heard people call them naturalized citizens. So they are part of the landscape like everything else. Why not just leave them alone? Yeah, and I think before we dive into the answer to that question or, or ways of thinking about the answer to this question, let's kind of cover the those definitions, those terms, right? So we've got native, non-native, invasive, and nuisance. So native are plants that are from a particular area. So in this case, for our episode purposes, we're talking about Florida. Um, and sometimes natives can become problematic and have invasive plant tendencies, right, or behave sort of like an invasive. But we don't call them invasive. We call them nuisance, kind of like a cattail, if you remember our cattail deep, t- deep dive episode. Then on the opposite end, we've got non-native, plants that are not from this particular area outside of Florida that have come in um, for various reasons, right? So non-natives can be a lot of, honestly, agricultural commodities, right? Like citrus or soybeans. Um, So we use them for good. We um, rely on them. But then there are other non-natives that become problematic or what we call invasive. They take over the natural environment. They become very competitive and kind of outcompete natives. And so that's why we use the word invasive for those plants. And so we've got native, nuisance, non-native, invasive. Right. And we've done a really good job, I think, over the years of helping people understand that not just invasive plants, but invasive species of all kind are harmful to the environment. And that's part of the definition. So a non-native species that causes ecological or economic harm is in this unique category called invasive. Yeah. And and the third part of that definition that surprised me the most was that it sometimes can cause uh, human health safety issues, right? So not only environment and the economy, but to the human uh, health and safety directly as well. If you think about Brazilian pepper tree, right? Absolutely. All sorts of allergens and things that can happen from it. So we've done a good job of helping people understand native good, invasive bad, But that black and white thinking can also cause us some problems because not all invasive plants are are created equal. 
right? There's a continuum. There are some invasive plants that are really, really, really problematic, and you just can't let those things go out and do whatever they want to do. There are others that aren't as problematic. Yes, they still cause ecological and economic harm, but not as bad. So first thing we need to think about here is the question, why don't we just leave these things alone? The answer is a lot of times we do right? We don't try to manage all of them. What we're really going after is this small subset of the worst and the most problematic invasive plants. And I would think the most prevalent in the systems that we use, right? So the the areas of the natural environment, like lakes for recreation or stormwater treatment areas, we rely heavily on these water resources um, or some of these natural areas that we use as trails um, and recreation. It's it, We are, as humans, interacting with them the most often, and so therefore we are responding to that environmental condition more prevalently than we would in other spaces or for other species, right? Absolutely. So the ones that are causing the most direct Direct impacts are the ones that we're going to manage first. And so when we think of a few of those plants, what kind of come to mind to kind of put this into perspective? I think there's a primary example that we can look at, one of which is Kogan grass. Hmm. So Kogan grass is this upland grass that is super, super thick. It grows really tightly together and it's not a a feed source so deer or other animals really can't eat it there's just no nutrition in it it has super sharp edges on the grass and it'll cut their mouth up so it's essentially like celery in the animal world (laughs) the more you eat the more weight you lose because there's it takes more energy to digest it if you can actually eat it and get it processed across the, the the mouth but this thing grows super tight and it excludes all other plants that want to grow there. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, interning on a cattle ranch and there'd be like patches of Kogan grass and you could kind of almost walk on top of it because it was just so thickly grown into itself. And the fact that nothing is eating it, there's nothing to slow its growth down and it just keeps going and going and that circle just gets wider and wider and wider. But there's another couple of things about Kogan grass that make it such a well-tuned in weed. We've talked a lot about that this plant has it figured out. Kogan grass has it figured out. So one of the things it does is it has some chemicals in it. We call them allelo chemicals. It's basically plant poisons. And it puts these poisons out in the atmosphere. And not only is Kogan grass competing with these other plants, it's actually making them sick at the same time. So, sorry, I heard you say atmosphere. So it releases the, so the allelopathy is like the plant releasing plant poison into the air, like atmosphere? No, no, the soil atmosphere. So it's putting it out in the soil and these other plants start taking it up and they don't just immediately die, but it makes them even weaker and the competition keeps pressing on them. And it just gives the Kogan grass an additional advantage. I mean, these plants are incredible. They have all their little tricks to get ahead in the environment. And the chemical that it puts out that makes other plants sick, Kogan grass is completely immune to. It doesn't, that chemical doesn't bother it at all. So it's an impressive plant. But then on top of that, Kogan grass loves to burn. And when it burns, it burns super, super hot. So there are times a year when Kogan grass will be green during the winter. It'll turn brown. Well, we all know that brown grass burns easier than green grass. Not with Kogan grass. It really doesn't matter. 
when it's green, it burns just as easily as it does when it's brown. But you go, well, this is Florida. Florida is a fire ecology type state where pine trees, longleaf pines, all the plants that are native here that we love, they're accustomed to it burning. It's no big deal to them. But the issue is cocoa grass burns a whole lot hotter than our native plants burn. So as cocoa grass fires start and that fire starts to move across the, the landscape, the native plants that would very easily be able to tolerate normal fires can't tolerate a cogan grass fire. There have been studies that show that the cogan grass can get so hot when it's burning, it actually boils the sap in pine trees. Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know that. So it it is just outrageous. And Dr. Luke Flory uh, at the University of Florida has done a lot of work on the fire dynamics of cogan grass. And what he has shown is it burns super hot the flames get taller, the flames are more intense than normal fires, and what it does is it just cleans the slate. And all of these native plants that are normally accustomed to fire get so hot, they die, and then guess what? Big open spot ready for cocoa grass colonization. Huh. So why don't we just leave them? In this scenario, if we leave cogan grass, there are no predators, there's nothing going to keep it in check. It's got allele chemicals to poison other plants. When it burns, it just takes initial advantage or additional advantage. If you just leave it before long, you'll have nothing but cogan grass. So you won't have pine trees anymore. You won't have your nice native wild flowers. You won't have place for pollinators. You only will have cogan grass. So that's that's like a terrestrial version or example of of these invasives. What about aquatic? I mean, we've covered so many different ones, but I think hallmark water hyacinth, right? Water hyacinth is another great example of why don't you just uh, leave them out there? Well, water hyacinth, again, they do a lot of things that normal native plants don't do. So these are free floating plants in the environment and they reproduce very quickly. And what you'll have is a mother plant that sends out a little runner and forms a daughter that then sends out a runner, sends out a runner, and you have these big chains or strings of plants. Mm. After a little bit of time, all of these plants start getting mixed and tangled with each other, and it forms these huge rafts. Water hyacinth can weigh a couple of hundred tons per acre, of size. And when you have this couple of hundred ton raft that is being moved in the wind, it becomes this big biological bulldozer. So not only is it blown up on the bank sometime and it will just scour the bulrush and all the other nice native plants that are up there, you have roots that are two to three feet long hanging down into the water column. And when that starts getting into shallow water that's only a foot deep, those roots start scouring the bottom and scraping all of the vallicinaria, all of the other submersed plants, and it just scrapes them up. It muddies the water. It makes a huge mess. And then that raft blows away, and now you're left with bare open area that is not habitat for anything. So these are two examples of, hey, they're here, they're not going to be eradicated. They're almost somewhat a naturalized citizen, like you said. So that's why we can't really leave them alone. 
what if we left a few? Why can't we? So this is this is our second question. Why can't we just leave a few? And I think this one commonly comes up when it when there's, for example, lake management meetings and the topic is hydrilla management. Why don't we just leave some of it? Because it serves a serves a purpose in a certain space within the lake. What do we do about that? Yeah, and I've a lot of people have rightly said you go out and grab a water hyacinth and you pull it up and you look at the roots and there'll be invertebrates and there'll be other critters growing in there. So water hyacinth does not create this biological desert, right? It does have ecosystem services is what people will say. Therefore, it's not all bad. Leave a few. Well, my answer to that is we do. We always leave a few because the goal is never eradication. We've tried that. Eradication is never going to happen. So the goal is never complete elimination of the plants. The goal is to get the population to a level that we can more easily manage that into the future. And there have been a lot of great examples about, well, what happens? It, can we just leave a few? One of which was back in the 1970s. It was on the St. John's River, and people were saying just that. These water hyacinth plants provide some shelter, some shade for fish. You go out into the river, you... You fish around them and your success rate goes up. So they are providing services. So keep them there. So the Army Corps of Engineers was who was in charge of managing the river back then. And they said, OK, new management strategy. We're going to leave a few. Well, think about, again, what a few means and how long is the St. John's River? Miles and miles and miles and miles long. It's very long. So if you have a 10 foot fringe of plants that's a mile long, that's over an acre of plants. So when you say fringe, just for, for visual, that's sort of the, the outside border of the river along the edge, they would leave sort of a perimeter of water hyacinth. Absolutely. The primary use of the St. John's River and the primary goal of the Army Corps of Engineers is to maintain navigation. So they said, we'll leave a few plants, but we're just going to keep them out of our way. Yep. They can be here on the edges. On the edge, there's not a navigation issue. So we'll just leave it there for wildlife. But every mile is an acre. And then you have mile after mile, two sides of the river, and again, these plants are free-floating. So after 20 or 30 miles of this, these plants move. If they could anchor, if they would stay on the edge, totally different conversation, right? Then it would be like lily pads or something like that that are rooted. But what would happen is several miles worth of these plants would start blowing together. They would form huge rafts. They now are not just confined to the edges. They're in the middle. They hit an obstacle like a bridge. They start backing things up. Navigation stops. The bridge is now at risk because you have thousands of tons of plants being pushed by this moving water. So this is a, a great example, and it's very well documented. When they were trying to manage the plants at low levels, they were using very little herbicide because there were few plants. But in just a couple of months of trying to leave a fringe, remember, these plants are reproducing very, very quickly. So not only do they move, but they add on to their, themselves quicker than managers can keep up with. At least doubling in number every two weeks. So these plants are growing. They're reproducing. They're moving. They're congregating. They're blocking. They're clogging. 
So they found trying to leave that fringe results in huge blockages, huge herbicide expenditures, trying to open navigation back up, trying to save these bridges. And by the way, all the docks that are on the St. John's that are private, those people have to have the Army Corps permit because it's Army Corps water. Okay. They have to have a permit to put their dock in. Well, now all of a sudden, because the Army Corps is not managing these plants correctly or they're letting them get out of hand, you now have this huge raft of plants that goes through like a bulldozer and knocks over dock after dock after dock. And now the homeowner is saying, well, I'm responsible to replace this dock because you guys let the plants get out of control. So they had issues with the stakeholders. They had issues with their bridges. They had issues with commerce. They said, we've got to get this back under control. So they simply weren't able to leave that fringe of plants. Yeah, that intentional fringe can can cause, you know, some damage. And so when we say, can we, you know, we do leave a few, it's that sort of human error of it all. And also, again, as we talk about with these invasive, especially aquatic plants, they've just got it figured out in the environment. So just by the nature of things, there's going to be some that are left behind, but the sort of intention of proactive management and not leaving a few or a fringe is really important, is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And the thing you have to keep in mind is where are we on the pro and con continuum, right? Because we want to go black, white. So in this camp or in that camp. But everything needs to be seen as how close to the white, how close to the black. So when you line up pros and cons, how many pros do you get from leaving some plants versus how many cons? Yes, you can have some invertebrates and other things living in the roots of these plants. Fish can like to congregate with the structure periodically, But when you line up the list of cons and the amount of concern you have for tearing out other habitats, bulldozing up that habitat, the impact on bridges, the impact on mosquito breeding, all of these things, there are more cons than pros. So management is essential on that plant. And again, we're talking about a small subset of this huge family of invasive plants in Florida. Yeah. And... So I hear you oftentimes say, you know, when a stakeholder or curious citizen comes up and asks, oh, can we just leave a few water hyacinth or hydrilla? You say, I know you want hydrilla or water hyacinth, but you actually what you really want is managed water hyacinth and managed hydrilla. That's what I try to get people to understand is if you don't manage it, you're going to have something very soon that is completely contrary to what you expected these plants will do. Again, not every plant fits into this category, but hydrilla and water hyacinth in particular, it is not going to behave. It is going to overgrow. And unless you manage it, you're going to end up in a situation you really never intended to be in. So again, we can't just leave them alone. That was the first question. And rounding it out, we can't just leave a few intentionally, like a fringe or or leaving a mat and turning our backs. With your best efforts, you're still leaving a lot. So by managing them very aggressively, you are going to leave enough that it doesn't become overwhelming. And aggressive management, if you think about it, isn't always a direct treatment, right? Catching up with treatments, whether it's chemical or physical or mechanical, um, is one thing. But once you kind of get ahead of it, then 
aggressive management also looks like getting out on the boat and monitoring and looking for those plants. So being out on the water often and looking out for them is also aggressive management. It's not always the the active treatment, right? Every management operation has to start with monitoring first. You have to know what's out there. And if you're not monitoring 10 hours to every one hour you're treating, you're going backwards. Mm. So the monitoring piece is really, really big. And that's why there are biologists all across the state in water management districts, in the Army Corps of Engineers, and in Florida FWC that are constantly out looking and making sure that we're not out of control or out of compliance in any one area. So we say we a lot. Bear with me, listeners. I know that sounded weird. But in the question, why can't we just leave a few plants? When we talk about management, it's we manage or we go out there. You and I aren't going out there. No. Um, nobody at Cape is managing plants for the for the state of Florida. But what do we what do we mean when we say we? <laughs> yeah, it, it it's hard to get this uh to tell this story in a way that keeps everybody in their in their proper roles, yeah. right? So as you've indicated, anybody at the University of Florida, we're not going out treating plants. That's not what we do. So we're just talking about as a plant management collective or as environmental stewards, and we're just speaking on behalf of those stewards and helping people understand that when I say we going out, it means the collective management mentality of the state of Florida. Yeah. And then when we talk about citizens or stakeholders, I think Dr. Farrell and I also identify as Floridians and people who interact with the environment. So we say we as a collective whole of people who appreciate and enjoy Florida's natural areas. So that's where this we and they and us come from. We're all a part of it. And I hope that by answering these questions and hosting this podcast, that sort of uh, community kind of comes through for you all. So Absolutely. Now, with that, have we covered the first two questions yeah. correctly? Yes, we we have. Um, and and now, third one uh, is a. I think this one's a pretty uh, heavy hitter. So I'm excited to kind of get the answer to this one. We we get asked this a lot. Um, and very soon, we are going to stop emphasizing we. Trust yes, me. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> um, okay, so are herbicides dumped into the water? Yeah, th- this is one we get a lot. You know, they, they'll say, I saw these applicators out just dumping herbicide. And and I get that. Yeah, I mean, I was just, sorry, interjecting. You see it happening, especially with spraying herbicide. It, it can look alarming. It can look a lot. It honestly kind of looks like a fire hose of amount of water. It can. Or treatment. And if solution. nothing else, it looks very unscientific and very non-precise. Mm-hmm. And that is what people are queuing on. It just looks like somebody's out there hosing down this area and they're just releasing massive amounts of herbicide into the environment. So I get it. So let's talk our way through this and see if we can understand what they're actually doing. So the first thing we need to kind of hit on is when you see that applicator out spraying, they are not spraying undiluted herbicide. Okay. So they're so they're not spraying directly what comes out of the bottle. Correct. The applicator will receive a shipment of concentrated herbicide. They then take that and measure out small amounts and put it in their tank, mix it with water, and that is what is applied. So for example, let's say that we've been talking a lot about water hyacinth. Mm-hmm. So let's just keep with that that uh, that plant. We're going to be spraying water hyacinth, and let's say we're using 2,4-D. 
very commonly, you'll take your jug of 2,4-D, you'll measure out one quart, pour it into a 100-gallon tank of water. So one quart of 2,4-D per 100 gallons of water, and that diluted mix is what is applied to the leaves of the water hyacinth for the management operation. So it already gets very diluted. Now, 2,4-D is one of our more high-use, quote-unquote, use rate products. There are things out there like Galleon or ClearCast. You only use a couple of ounces of those. So if you're using Galleon for controlling water hyacinth, you'll start with, say, three ounces diluted into 100 gallons of water. So it is a very diluted solution. So you start with 99.75% water, you add 0.25% herbicide, and then that gets diluted into a million gallons of water. And they use that amount because that is what's on the label, or, or that is what is guaranteed to work and be effective and also not cause unreasonable damage to the environment. Absolutely. Okay. An applicator can't just go willy-nilly and just start pouring herbicide in a tank. Mm -hmm. The EPA very strictly guides on how much you can apply of any given herbicide. The labels will state, do not exceed two quarts per acre per application. All right. Now, if you want to put out one quart per acre, that's fine. You cannot exceed two quarts per acre per application. And then the label will go on to say, and do not exceed eight quarts per acre per year. So it gives you restrictions on how much you can put out today, how much you can put out in an entire year. And these are not use directions. These are legally binding guides that the EPA has put in place. And if you exceed those application rates, then you are in violation of both state and federal law. Oh. So this is real. You have to read the label. You have to follow the label or there is there are real violations and, and real restrictions that can be imposed on the applicator. So just to put it a little bit more into perspective, I'm admittedly horrible at visualizing what an acre looks like, but a lot of times the treatments are communicated as we're going to treat 10 acres of this aquatic plant in this lake. Um, so say you're going to treat one acre of water. What does that equal in like real life? So if you visualize a football field, a football field is going to be a little over an acre. All right. So that's about the size that we're talking about. But it, then think about water depth as well. All right. So not only are we we're treating these plants that are here floating on the surface, but they are floating in several feet of water usually. So if you have one acre of water that is three feet deep, that's essentially a million gallons of water. Yeah. And three feet isn't very deep at all. Not so it. that already is a million gallons of water. Okay. Absolutely. So again, start one quart is diluted in a hundred gallons. Oh yeah, that's right. Cause you got to mix it up first. You got to mix it up first. Then you apply it to the plants that spray anything that doesn't hit the plants is going into the water. And if it's three feet deep, that's an additional million gallons. So a quart in 100 gallons, that 100 gallons gets put into a million gallons. And very soon you have 
such little herbicide in the environment. And there are all sorts of microbes and everything else breaking that herbicide down. So the environmental impact is very, very low when you follow the label. And that's why following that label is so important. So I think herbicide breakdown is an episode of its of its own for sure. And I'm honestly looking forward to recording that one and, and y'all should stay tuned. But I, I want to ask this sort of enforcement piece. How is following the label enforced? I guess it, particularly in the state of Florida. Yeah. So the EPA is the head agency that says they set the rules. Okay. They then send the rules down to the state of Florida and they say, these are our rules. Do you want to add any? So can't take any away, can't take any away, but you can always add some. And Florida has, they have added significant rules. So for 2,4-D, for example, we have the Florida organooxin rule. If you want to use 2,4-D, there is a lot of record keeping you have to do that you don't have to do in Georgia. You don't have to do in South Carolina. And the EPA doesn't care if you do it or not. But Florida says we're going to add additional restrictions. So the EPA rules come down. Florida adds to them, and now Florida is in charge of enforcing everything for EPA and all the additional restrictions that they have put in place. So if you are not following the label, there are enforcement folks from Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services that are going to come out. They'll say, let me see your records. Show me what you did. Describe what you did. And meanwhile, they're looking at the label. They're asking you questions and making sure you have complied. And if you don't comply, there are violations that are handed out every day in this state. And we've had an episode on this, and I, I feel like it ties in. So the state of Florida has that sort of spray tracker. FWC has a spray tracker. Um, what does that system look like in relation to enforcement? Like, So it's even an additional step to help comply. So the vast majority of applicators that are working on state water in Florida, those contractors have GPS tied to their spray wand. And every time they pull the trigger on that spray wand, the computer turns on and we know where that boat is. We know how long they were spraying and we know how much they were spraying per second, the flow rate per second. All of this information is then compiled and we can tell how much an individual contractor sprayed on an individual lake in a minute, in an hour, or in an entire day. And that came from a similar question. Are herbicides dumped into the water? Someone will call in very concerned, hey, we saw a treatment happening. And now they're able to have all of those answers in terms of who was spraying, why they were spraying, what they were spraying, how long. And it's hard data. Yeah. It's not just someone saying, let me see if I can trick this regulatory official and let me see if I can get a lie over on them. No. Everything that you did that day is recorded, it is in a database, and it is fully transparent. So there is no escaping the fact the fact that you have failed to follow the label. Yeah, so to me, it sounds like the lead agency, FWC, in the state of Florida, has kind of started to address this question. Um, and from a scientific level, there's a lot of research and information about the safety of herbicide and the fate of herbicides in the environment, which we'll definitely tackle in the next episode. But yeah, the enforcement part's super interesting. Um, one last sort of common misconception when it comes to herbicide application is... Um, do these applicators kind of have an incentive to use the herbicide at all, right? I don't know if I'm phrasing that 
perfectly accurately, but I think a lot of misconception is they want to spray or when they spray, they make more money. Right. There is, again, this question, I have heard it in Texas. I have heard it in Florida. I have heard it in Michigan. And they're saying, you know, that person on the spray boat, they are no different than the person in a factory that's assembling parts on on an assembly line. The more parts you assemble, the more money you get at the end of the day, the more you spray, the more you get paid. And it makes, when you say it like that, it's like, okay, I see the logic in that, but where does that sort of not quite sound so true in this industry or this science? Yeah, because there we don't want there to be any incentive to spray more. What we want is plant management, and we want plant management to be done with the least amount of herbicide in the environment as possible. So the way the contracts are set up is you get paid by the hour. And if you spray all day long, you get paid this much. If you spray for 15 minutes because there are very few plants, you get paid the exact same. So this concept of these applicators have a thousand gallon a day minimum that they have to comply with in order to get paid, no. When they hit the water, they start being paid. When they leave the water, they stop getting paid. And spraying is completely irrelevant to that process. So that clears the air on the sort of herbicides are dumped into water. There's a lot of dilution, a part of the process when it comes to preparing treatments. And then there's the EPA and state level or federal and state level regulations and enforcement. And then finally, the sort of misconception of, oh, they're spending so much time out on the water spraying all the time because that increases their pay or incentive. That's just not true. Their contract stays the same no matter what. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate kind of hashing out these questions. Let's review them real quick. So these three that we covered today were, there are so many invasive plants and many have naturalized. Why not just leave them alone? Well, by and large, we do, right? We are not trying to eradicate these plants. That is not the goal. We always leave a lot of plants, regardless of the management strategy. But there are a few that we're going to manage more aggressively just because they demand that aggressive management. And then second, why can't we just leave a few plants? I mean, you provided some great examples. Right. Trying to leave a few, like I said, we're we're always leaving a lot. There's always this reservoir population that we're leaving. But there are some plants that if you leave a few, they're going to bunch up and become a lot. So leaving just a few can really set up a situation where you're putting yourself at peril and endangering public and private property in the process. Okay. And then finally... Are herbicides dumped into the water? I mean, people have seen some treatments and have felt concerned. Yeah. Again, your eyes are, are, are seeing what your eyes are seeing, but thinking that we're not dumping the herbicide in the water, but rather it is being applied to an area according to the label. And if it is not according to the label, that is a violation and they need to be cited for that. But these applications are... They're slated. They are designed by biologists. They then go out in the manner with which they were set forward. So this is a very thoughtful, thought through process. And every little piece is working according to both state and federal regulation. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Farrell. I'm really enjoying the sort of back and forth with a lot of these common questions that we receive. Um, if any of you have more questions or maybe want to have a longer discussion about some of the ones that we talked about today, please email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. That's cape at ifis.ufl.edu. And yeah, continue listening as we continue to turn science into solutions. <laughs> <laughs>